Welcome to the Lion's Share Podcast for marketing leaders by marketing leaders. Brought to you by Fidelitas Development. All right, and welcome to episode seven of the Lion's Share Marketing Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Tyler Sickmeyer, coming to you live from San Diego and out of our Nashville office. It's Kyle. No, I didn't get roofied. It's just 8.30 and past my bedtime Weber. Welcome, Kyle. (laughs) Thanks. Do I look that sleepy? (laughs) Maybe. Just a little bit today. (laughs) Well, you know. It's been cloudy. I need the sunshine. The time change? No. Actually, I prepared for the time change ahead of time and started going to bed. at That's how nerdy I am. I started going to bed earlier (laughs) just so that when the time change happened, I was prepared. Hey, always good to be prepared, ladies. Uh, keep that in mind if you're looking for a man that strives for a preparation. Oh, that said, better preparation than perspiration, I always say. Yep. So, Kyle, uh, tell us, before we get to our interview with Jamie Albert, who is a great friend of ours and an e-commerce marketing leader over at a wonderful company called the Golf Warehouse, if you don't shop for your golf supplies online, you should take a look at them and start. But in the meantime, uh, Kyle, tell us, what's in the news? <laughs> News team, assemble! Well, Tyler, today we're going to be talking about handling reviews. Dun, 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 dreaded reviews. So, Tyler, let me just ask you. Do you think that right now there are marketing experts listening and wondering what in the world they can do to take some of their businesses one and two star reviews out there on any of those review sites or product sites or anything and turn them into three, four, or maybe even five star reviews and what could possibly give them a fighting chance to do such a thing? I, I don't think they're listening right now because we're not live. This is pre-recorded. But <laughs> okay. But I think I, I think they will listen down the line. And yeah, I think there's absolutely a lot of that. I think uh, businesses of all types, and heck, even podcasts like us, will always clamor for more reviews. So shameless. Absolutely. Support. Make sure you go uh, download us and leave us a review on iTunes, <laughs> Player, wherever it is that you're uh, listening to this fine source of media content. Look at that. And, and guaranteed, this is what's going to happen. We're going to get those like one and two, and they're going to be like, are they going to implement this information to get it up to a four or a five? Yeah, don't test yeah. us. Don't, don't <laughs> yeah, test please. us. Please. Just, yeah, just go ahead and bypass that and leave a five-star review. Wouldn't, that'd be great. Just as we recommend to our clients not to bribe reviewers, we're not going to bribe you either. So don't think a one-star review on the Lion's Share Marketing Podcast <laughs> is going to get you a reward of any sort. <laughs> okay. So Yelp just released an article And uh, it's entitled, Responding to Reviews Within 24 Hours Boosts Your Upgrade Probability. So Yelp, I don't know if you knew this, they have a data science team, which I think is kind of cool. I picture them uh, all wearing glasses and lab coats, but probably isn't that way. But that's just how I picture them. They they use science to determine which businesses to intimidate into a marketing plan. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Shots fired. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So anyway, that science team says that their users are 33% more likely to upgrade their review if a business responds with a personalized message within a day. So that's really fascinating. This this is the strategy that I say, like, if all you want to do is just kind of improve that, all you have to do is respond within a 24 hour period. So uh, if all you did was give customized responses to reviewers within a 24 hour period, I would basically give you a batting average of 333, and uh, you could take your reviews into a more positive direction. I like the baseball reference. Cardinals Thank baseball you. is almost upon us. So. It is. Spring training, I saw they played down in Jupiter just the other day. They were playing Houston, and it was 85 degrees, and where I was at at the time was not 85 degrees, and I was pretty jealous. Yeah, I hear you there. So in case you guys don't know, listening at home, Kyle's a uh, big fan of warm weather. Uh, but getting back to the reviews, Kyle always gives Warm Weather a five-star review. He's, he's I do. hard about it. So going back to the reviews, though, I think there's definitely a profit to be had for businesses that are more proactive in trying to nip uh, these questionable situations in the bud. Whether or not it's the business's fault, it's going to be perceived as fault until otherwise proven. You know, it's kind of like, uh, unfortunately, businesses and brands are guilty until proven innocent when it comes to a negative review. And now most experienced review readers can start to discern when someone just has a bone to pick with the business versus something legitimate. But at the same time, why leave it to chance? I I think the harshness of the review, even if they don't edit it, is taken with a grain of salt. If the business makes a polite and well-written attempt to appease the 
negative review. And if that happens, businesses have much more of a leg to stand on with their new potential customer. Hey, you're absolutely right, Tyler. In fact, according to one study, uh, businesses that ignore complaints on review sites actually experience a 37% decline in customer advocacy. And if they just respond to complaints, they can actually see a 16% boost in that customer advocacy. And I did see also somewhere, and I don't remember where I saw this, but if uh, a business actively responds to reviews, they can have a 5% increase in their customer retention rate uh, for people who would not have come back, which over time means a lot of profit. So you're absolutely right in saying that profitability can be increased if a business is handling their complaints in a timely manner and also in a positive manner as well. Absolutely, Kyle. Very good. And uh, we have a lot of great content today in our interview with Jamie. So I don't want to delay any longer. Let's get right to it in our interview with Jamie Albert. All right, and welcome to another interview on the Lion Share Marketing Podcast. Today, we are fortunate enough to be joined by Jamie Albert. Jamie is the Director of Online Marketing for the Golf Warehouse, headquartered out in Wichita, Kansas. We've known Jamie for some time, actually a former Fidelitas client before she questionably left sunny San Diego for greener pastures, quite literally, out in Wichita. So, Jamie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So, Jamie, tell us more about what you do specifically for the Golf Warehouse and the Golf Warehouse's sister sites. So, as the director of online marketing, I'm really in charge of one main area, a couple of areas. The main area is really customer acquisition. So, our various channels that we use to acquire customers are, of course, paid search, remarketing, affiliate channels, and natural search. We don't do a ton on, on the social media side. And also, I head up what you could call our analytics and and budgeting division. So I'm also in charge of the finance for the department and our analytics division rolls up under the online marketing umbrella. So kind of a lot, as I, as I explain it, it's a little bit of, you know, getting the customer in and then kind of analyzing what they do once they're there. Okay, great. Awesome. So, so, and uh, how, how big is your team? Well, our marketing department within TGW Baseball Savings and Soccer Savings is maybe about 15 people with some outside vendor assistance. Okay, we we handle most of it all in-house, but we do have out, outside vendor assistance on some of our marketing channels, like a lot of institutions. Okay. Okay. Very good. Yeah, that's a pretty strong in-house team. So do all 15 of you work on all three brands or do you have it kind of segmented out per brand? We get the luxury of working on all three brands and we are an online only retailer. We do have one retail store in Wichita. It was developed back in the late nineties, kind of forced by the brands. They said, you know, the big brands, Nike, Titleist, these brands said, well, you just can't sell only online. You know, that's not a thing. You have to have a retail store to sell out of. So that's how our our retail store was born. But the major focus of our business is online only retail. Such forward thinking back then. It very much was. And and that's how they got started. They were, you know, arguably one of the first, if not the only online only golf retailers at the time. And then they developed additional sporting good websites as an ancillary business. And baseball savings and soccer savings do do very well. Uh, baseball savings happens to be one of the largest online only baseball retailers in the space. Soccer is a bit more competitive. Nice. So very good. And understandably so with soccer, obviously you're competing with more of a global audience versus more of probably a, absolutely uh, for lack of a better term, a continental audience with baseball. Correct. Correct. And then golf is, is such an interesting business to be in, you know, especially this year in the last few years, golf has seen some tremendous changes and and challenges as, as well as sporting goods kind of in general, but golf specifically has seen shrinking participation our, you know, our biggest, most interesting player, Tiger Woods, has has not been as active as he has been in, in the past. And, and Tiger really had a lot to do with golf visibility as a, as a broader sport. So it, we've definitely had some challenges. Some of our competition has filed bankruptcy or closed. Uh, Golfsmith, for example, is, was purchased by Dick Sporting Goods and rolled up into the Golf Galaxy brand. So there's been a lot of changes. Nike has stopped producing hard goods. So a lot of, a lot of changes. Sure. So yeah, total, totally get that. So it's tough as a retailer because obviously you can't go in and 
just fix a sport. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of folks over at the PGA trying to figure that out. Obviously, there's not a lot of room uh, when your brand is the golf warehouse to pivot. So how do you exactly? So how do you make up for a sport that's declining in popularity by gaining larger market share? Well, I can't give away my trade secrets, but having you on. I know it is, you know, where we see a lot of growth and opportunity is still in, in the search space in the paid search space. Social has been really tough for us to, to figure out profitably um, because that's always the true test of what you're doing in marketing is, are you doing it profitably? So that's been a, a tough one for us to figure it out. Email is a big channel for us. And we do exceptionally well there. We've got a great team that manages that. And we've got just an, an incredible program there that really helps with our customer retention. But I think your question was more about how do we grab market share? And it's really about being tactical and focused and trying to find that particular golf buyer that, that we're interested in. So there's a varying, there's maybe about 25 million people in the United States that play golf in general. And we're, our target is maybe only about 6 million of those people. So we have a really niche product and a really niche market. And so we just try to use aggressive targeting tactics to find the right people with the, the right messaging for us at, at hopefully the right cost. Okay, great. And how do you narrow it down? Obviously, it's great for marketers to be able to find their niche audience because kind of like, you know, if you're a shoe manufacturer saying, oh, well, I sold everyone that has feet. No, you don't. So, so to be very plain about it. So, so, sure. so how do you, so how do you narrow that uh, niche down from the 20 million or so that play golf to the 6 million or so that are your core customer base? We do some targeting through various Google networks, you know, trying to find like customers using the kind of RSLA audiences, those kinds of things. So really just trying to find like customers to who we are or who we currently have rather. and targeting those. Once you hone in on people who are buying golf products, which the Google shopping ads really, really give you um, a targeted golf buyer. That's another great, great campaign we run and a great way that we do it is those people are actively looking for products, you know, to go from the 25 million to the 6 million, while the 6 million is our target, we will sell to any of the 25 million. So really golf is already pretty segmented itself and you don't have to do a lot of internal segmentation. You can, but a lot of times it doesn't necessarily work out as far as profitability and energy invested to do the segmentation. So we really just try to focus on, like I said, the 6 million through some various tactics of marketing. One of our big programs is really paid search and using that within Google text ads, PLAs, and that helps us to really find targeted customers that are looking for golf products. As Amazon gets bigger and is reported has taken over Google in total search for products. So I think I read somewhere close to 55% of all product searches now start on Amazon, as opposed to having been the majority on Google. It does get to be a challenge and, and we're trying to, we're currently trying to figure out how to manage that. But with some of our competitors going away, there has been some space that, that opens up for us naturally, if not luckily. On both platforms? Yes. I would argue that on both platforms. We do sell on Amazon, and it's kind of a blessing and a curse to, to sell on Amazon. You know, they always say whoever has the gold makes the rules. And between Amazon and Google, that's that's definitely true. It can be a challenge if you're a retailer trying to sell products on Amazon. In my former life, when I, I worked with Tyler previously, I worked for a brand that sold on Amazon. And that is much more realistic experience and, and realistic ad ratios and, and profitable when you are the brand okay. selling directly to Amazon. Being a retailer selling on Amazon definitely has its additional challenges. Yeah. Absolutely. So how do you go about differentiating yourself as a retailer in a land where everyone has free two-day shipping and everyone has the same pair of size 14 Nikes for sale? 
So we'll, I'll say something that might seem rather cliche, but content is the way that we're separating ourselves out and not just general content, but I think the way that we do it, that is unique to us and something that we're investing heavily in as far as resources is to create that very important product specific content that helps the customer convert. So golfers, and I'm learning to be one, but I'm no, I'm terrible as it is now, but when you're a golfer, there are a lot of technical details that you want to know about products that isn't necessarily provided by the manufacturer, and that can really be expanded upon. There's tons of different measurements, loft, lie, all of these things that go along with buying a club, how heavy is the shaft, tons of pieces of information. So how we try to separate ourselves out and, and not just be a me too is to really try to help the golfer and provide them the information that they need to make the purchase about the item they're trying to get, to provide that technical detail so that they can feel comfortable knowing that the product they're picking out will work for them. Do you do that through social channels or are you doing that on the platforms themselves? Like, are you able to get that message across on Amazon? We are not able to get that message across on Amazon. That is so how Amazon works is whoever creates the product listing owns the content. So we aren't able to do that there. We do that on our own platform. Okay, great. And Jamie, how have you found Amazon optimization to be different than traditional SEO? I think the thing about creating product optimization in Amazon is that it really comes down to if you are the brand. And that's where you have the most opportunity. So knowing that and optimizing it for the channel is there is a level of content investment. So when we talk about SEO a lot, it's always about having really good content that can feed up and, and be fresh. I don't know so much that fresh content is important in Amazon, but what's important is a lot of content and presenting the content in various formats. Now, this could be true for traditional SEO, but I think there's a clear template for content and format that works really well in Amazon. So what Amazon has within their system is something they call A plus pages. And it allows you to build out your content in various ways, but in certain set templates. And that's really how you would optimize within Amazon and how it might differ from traditional SEO is that there are these preset templates in the way that the content is presented in order to optimize your listing there. Amazon also has its own very robust paid ad platform. And so having those two work hand in hand is much more targeted, I feel, if you're a brand, than operating within Google. Awesome. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. You know, that's one thing. Again, it's, it's just a completely set, different set of rules. I mean, you've got the same game, same objective at the end of the day, but really just mm -hmm. a different strategy to win. You know, it's kind of like playing for lack of a better term, kind of like playing chess and checkers. The difference I think in Amazon too is reviews play such a big role in product conversion. Now, not that they don't on your own site, but it plays a much bigger role because Amazon is a much bigger platform. So if you see a product with five reviews or a product with 5,000 reviews, right, you have an obvious difference there. Where maybe on my own platform, on my golf website, five reviews would be enough to to drive a customer to convert, where on Amazon's platform, it's a, a much different volume metric as far as reviews. And it's a much more important piece of the, the optimization element. That's right. I look personally for the reviews first every time I go in to buy a product off of Amazon that I'm not maybe very familiar with. I'll always read the reviews. Now, for a brand who's introducing a product to Amazon, how do they compete when you know, they may only have a couple reviews and the competitive product has like 5,000. It's a challenge. It definitely is. One thing that I instituted was a sampling program for introducing new products to Amazon. So I would reach out to Amazon's top reviewers and provide them a sample for a free review. FCC regulation required that they mention they received the product for a free review. Now there's been some talk about recently I've heard, and I don't know what Amazon's new rules about doing that are, but that they might change the ability to do that. And depending on what product you're creating, that works or that doesn't. As you know, you had some of our camping gear. And so that was easy enough and inexpensive enough for me to, to give out as far as a sampling program. And we did that for our own website. 
you know, when you're, you're the brand and you're manufacturing, you've got a lot more margin. So you, you have things like that, that you can play with and you can get the reviews on Amazon's website or on your own website. So that's maybe one of the best ways to do it is to encourage reviews. And it also depends on if you sell to Amazon or if you sell on Amazon. Those are two very distinct and different ways of managing your product and marketing your product. So there's, there's that other element. But if you sell on Amazon, you can reach out to customers and have a cadence about asking for reviews as well if they've made a purchase. But the hard part is getting them to make the purchase in the first place and having the reviews, which is kind of a chicken before the egg. So sampling product to reviewers can be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're spot on. And really, that's kind of funny because, you know, we tell clients all the time that SEO and PR now go hand in hand. And it's really the same Absolutely. for Amazon optimization and PR go hand in yeah. hand. Yeah. So it's, again, it's kind of that fine line of convincing the influencers to give you a review. And uh, really, you just kind of have to stand behind the quality of your products and hope and pray for a great review and, and that they have a great experience and that the postal service doesn't mess up their order or anything. Right. Uh, right. Because, because there are so many variables there that you don't control. But at the same time, it's not quid pro quo. I mean, you can't send stuff out and demand that people give you a great review. Now, obviously, no. if they don't pay for the product, I think people naturally tend to be a little bit more generous or, or but because they're, they're, they're human and most people are nice. <laughs> you, you, you do have some that they'll, they'll say the count of the packing peanuts was off. They'll get you on right, something. Right. I guess we'll knock it down to three stars because I, I didn't really like that the shipping guy ran the doorbell. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, absolutely. It can be. Well, and you're right. You know, everything is so interconnected now. The web is its own ecosphere and, and every piece is highly connected to the other. And, and I think what gets hard for a lot of marketers especially if you're managing multiple channels is which piece to focus on and which is going to help drive the most revenue, you know, profitably and which to sometimes you just have to maybe ignore until you can get to that level. It gets difficult, especially between Amazon and then your own platforms. It can be a real challenge. You know, we even at our businesses, sometimes we wind up doing enhancements to our back-end communications and things like that for Amazon, where we question, you know, are we putting that channel ahead of our own channels? The balance is, is definitely a challenge, but just something we all have to work within. Oh, without question. So on your end specifically, obviously, at the end of the day, all marketing leaders, which is our audience here for this podcast, all marketing leaders are accountable to results, whether it's by the CEOs or investors or whomever, how do you balance the need to generate sales on your own site? Because obviously, anytime you make an investment into e-commerce, that's not cheap. And that's not something that people want to uh, take lightly or just say, oh, well, that's great that we spent X on this new site. Now let's go put all of our eggs into the Amazon basket, right? So how do you balance selling on your own site versus selling on Amazon? Well, I think for us as a retailer, it becomes a little bit different. And ultimately, we want to sell the most amount of product, but we want to sell it profitably. So we're currently trying to come up with a program to where we can use Amazon as a liquidation channel. You know, what happens to inventory over time for us, because we sell a lot of apparel, is it becomes very broken. So in order to make additional investments in Amazon as a channel, I've had to get creative about how I can use it and how I can use it profitably. And using it as a liquidation tool is something that we feel and are working towards doing that can help us be more profitable on that channel. Amazon is going to have far more eyes than my website ever will because I can buy, you know, I can buy my golf driver with my toilet paper, with my kids' school books all at the same time. So they have much larger reach than I do. So putting some of that broken product that I have as a retailer off of my website and onto Amazon is is some of the strategy and, and tactic that we look at to try to make that balance. And okay, what really helps to use Amazon? How can we benefit our own site? So I guess that's really the question is, is there an opportunity for brand awareness, which I think is very limited on Amazon? So is there an opportunity to use it in other ways that ultimately benefit our own site? And by pulling some of this broken inventory off of our site. Not only do we increase the value of our websites, we also make SEO improvements by pruning 
you know, old content and things like that. So it's really trying to find a way that you can create a win-win situation and it can be a challenge, but it's just looking for ways to be creative and, and making sure that you are ultimately winning and you're not giving everything over to Amazon if you're a retailer. Now, if you're a brand selling on Amazon, it's, it's different and it can pose different challenges. What happens to a lot of people when they sell on Amazon as a brand is it becomes difficult to control your distribution. So you have a lot of people who might pick up your product here and there and, and sell it for much cheaper, creating knockoffs and these kinds of things. So the distribution can, can also be a challenge if you sell on Amazon. But ultimately, it comes back to really creating a win-win for your brand and what can you do profitably. It's doing the math up front and figuring it out. Great advice. Great advice, Jamie. So shifting gears a second to your e-commerce platform, what do, you, what do you guys use for the golf warehouse and your sister companies? WebSphere Commerce. We just replatformed the golf site in October 2015. And then the baseball and soccer sites are were done in May of 2016. So, so far, so good. Things are going really, really well. One challenge we currently have is WebSphere design and inherent accessibility or functionality as far as SEO goes. I think it's a little light in that area. One of the things that we got and a challenge we're currently facing is that we've heard Google talk about their mobile first index. Well, we currently have an M.Dot site that we run, but our WebSphere platform also has a responsive site. And we've done testing on our golf site and our M dot site, our mobile optimized site does perform better. So there's clear money there on the table, right? It, that That's working and sure. it's converting better. But we also know that Google has decided to go to a mobile first index and our mobile version is far stripped down compared to our desktop version with a lot less content. So, so we're trying to decide which direction to go, as I'm sure a lot of people are deciding what to do, knowing this, you know, do I need to build out responsive? How will M.Dot go? I've invested a lot of energy into this. So it'll be a challenge and it'll be interesting to see what happens with Google. You know, there's been a lot of talk about it and I don't think Google will roll it out as quickly as a lot of people fear they will. Just think that there'll be a lot of things that they have to measure and test before you can completely roll that out 100% across the board. So I don't know that I expect it to be, you know, even by the end of the first half of the year, personally, just because I can only imagine how much testing goes into that. But we'll see. Google has a lot of data and a big team and a lot of resources. So, and they like to keep that all shrouded in secrecy anyways. Of course, there's always something new coming out. We could probably just do a podcast about changes to the Google algorithm. Oh gosh, I can imagine. What do you guys think about the M dot versus responsive? What do you think is the way to go or or what maybe short-term, long-term solutions? Oh, Jamie, turning it around and interviewing us now. Uh, Kyle. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just keeping I hope that's all right. It, it absolutely is. Uh, my thought on it, I, I actually think that MDOT will be completely irrelevant within a couple of years. I think Google is going to force the issue. Basically, you almost have to build everything from scratch with the mobile user in mind and then and then reverse engineer it. Maybe you can add some icing on the cake, so to speak, as far as features go for desktop users. But everything has to be built with the mobile user in mind. I think search is only going to skew even more so towards mobile than it does already. And as much as I think most marketing leaders would agree that Google AMP sucks from a marketing standpoint, I think everyone would also agree that Google's not going to get rid of it anytime soon. So knowing that, I think in order to play by the rules that we're given, I think responsive is going to be table stake. Yeah, I wonder yeah, about I, that because we have a lot of, I don't know about a lot of other websites or and maybe you guys can give me some insight about how some of your other clients work. But I know for our products, we do a lot of search on mobile, but a lot of conversion on desktop. And I still always try to try to figure that one out. Yeah, I, I think part of it, uh, you know, you go back to buyer psychology. I mean, you look at even how most people use their phones, you know, they'll multitask while they're watching a TV show or while they're sitting in traffic or I, I mean, it's kind of funny, but literally while they're sitting on the toilet, people sit there and use their They'll, they'll use their phones, but they don't necessarily complete a purchase. And I think part of that is the the path to purchase is still a little complicated. 
on mobile devices. You know, it's not as easy or as common for a mobile site to just be able to auto-complete your credit card information. And most sites haven't figured out how to integrate Apple Pay or Google Wallet into their payment options yet. I think once that happens, I think we'll see the conversion start to skyrocket on mobile devices. Yeah, and I could tell you, maybe I'm behind the times a little bit, but I do exactly what Tyler said. Like, I'll be walking around and I'll think, oh, I need to get this item. I'm out of this item and I'll log into Amazon and I'll add it to my cart, but I won't complete the purchase until I get to my desktop. And I don't know if it's because I could just see my screen better. Maybe I'm suffering from some sort of like cell phone blindness. I'm not sure, but I do, me personally, I do feel more comfortable processing, you know, my cart through, you know, through the desktop. Kyle, I thought you were going to say shopping from the bathroom. So I'm I'm glad you went with the direction. Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) I always wonder if that's a, it's a function of comp shopping, right? I don't know what you guys do, but whenever I'm about to buy a product, I then go copy and paste whatever product it is I'm looking at in my search bar and see if I can find anywhere else cheaper. Absolutely. And I don't think that that's as easy to do on mobile. No, not at all. You're right. It's not, Uh, you know, if we're, if we're talking commoditized items like, Oh crap, I'm out of tide or, you know, we need more paper towels. I think people will buy that from their phone and they just order it as quickly as they can just get it done, get it shipped to the house and they're done. I, I think when it's a special purchase. So like in Jamie's case at the golf warehouse, or, or, or even on sister sites, like when you buy a bat, that's probably more important to a player on the baseball side than even, you know, a new putter is to a golfer. That's like their signature equipment purchase is what bat do they use? So I think for part of it, that's not something that most players, even if they want it on impulse, they're not going to buy on impulse. They're going to shop around. They're going to see, is it on sale uh, in a local store? How quick can I get it? How much is shipping going to be? How, what am I going to have to show my mom to convince her to get it for me? You know, I think all that kind of stuff goes into it because part of it also depends on who's looking. I think wish lists are built on mobile, like you said, Jamie, and I think conversions are still executed on desktop and I think will be until they yeah. figure out the payment side. Yeah. Well, well, we'll need to make sure and monitor desktop sales to see when we can pick the trend when they go down, then we'll know mm-hmm. we're good. Yeah. And that's another dilemma for marketers because at the same time, it's like, where do you put your ad spend? Do you, do you put it on mobile for the initial discovery of the product or do you put it on desktop for the comparison phase? <laughs> you know, oh, I yeah. think you do both and you just bid down mobile. It doesn't convert as well. So you just bid it down. And if it works, at least from a paid search side, you know, you bid it down to where you can get it to convert profitably. And then you set your, your metric of where you can convert on desktop and hit that too. Absolutely. I think you're spot on, Jamie. And so, and so shifting back to your own site for a minute, obviously every retailer and marketing leaders, especially, it can be frustrating. You pay to drive new customers in the door, whether you're talking a brick and mortar retailer or online, and then maybe they don't have the best customer experience and they don't come back. And so the sales aren't there to reflect the efforts of the marketing team. So, so how do you go about ensuring that customers online have a great experience when they shop one of your brands? We really utilize our post-interaction surveys And I'm sure a lot of retailers of any size, brand, retail, whatever, would likely do the same. And we analyze the feedback and try to take meaningful action on our site as well. And we constantly run tests on our own site and we'll do competitor analysis of the transactional experience. So I'm shopping, I receive my product, and we try to rate it personally, you know, unbiased, so to speak. So we, we're really active about that customer experience and, and how does that customer feel. So we, we review our surveys on a monthly basis. You know, we look at customer feedback. We reach out to them if they've, they've had a bad experience and then are constantly trying to make improvements to our site and to our processes to ensure that our customers are having the best experience as possible. That's great. And definitely key because obviously bounce back customers and repeat business is key. So It's way have- cheaper to keep a customer than it is to get a new one. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, what kind of loyalty incentives do you use, Jamie, to get your customers to keep coming back? You know, that's one place that I think we really have opportunity. We do some loyalty email type of programs, but as a general rule, we don't have a good loyalty program. You know, and I think part of that is a lot of times maybe people have loyalty when they're not that good to begin with. Not everybody, but you kind of have to keep people because maybe you're not that good some of the time. 
we're really trying to focus right now on making sure we give a really, really good customer experience. We've had some improvements. Like I said, we replatform. So we've got some opportunity to develop on. And I think once we feel that we're in a really good place with that, then we can start to talk about some of those other things. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a good mindset. So I think I need to say something more controversial. You guys are just agreeing with me way too much. <laughs> yeah, where's your, where's your hot take at, Jamie? I don't know. I need one. About this. We, we need you to have a hot take. All right, let's go this way. This is always a good can of worms to open up. So with social media, what platform is going to die and why? What platform is going to die and why? Well, Vimeo already died, right? Yes. And, and, that and, thing? And, yeah. That already died? Vine. Vine, yeah, is, Vine. Vine is dead. See, that just goes to show how much I know about what's going on in social at the moment. <laughs> of Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Which one's not going to be around in three to five years? I don't know that I think any of them won't be around in three to five years. I think what you will likely have, what you have a better chance of having is which one will be acquired by the other within the next three to five years, Mm. which I think is kind of what you've seen with Facebook and Instagram and, and they're copying pieces of the other. So I think that is maybe likely the, the next question is, is who's going to gobble up who? Maybe not who goes away, but who gets gobbled. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you what, I like Twitter personally as a user. There's a lot of good functionality to it, but I don't think it has the broad appeal that it needs. That's why we were just talking in the office today, their stock price is continuing to worsen. And while we certainly don't want to get into giving financial advice, I think I'd be frustrated if I had purchased Twitter stock and bought what Jack Absolutely, absolutely. Even on the numbers, I heard an interview recently about traffic being generated from Facebook versus Instagram versus Twitter, and Twitter paled in comparison by, I mean, it was almost microscopic compared to some of the other organic traffic that was coming uh, from Facebook and Instagram for social platforms. I'll tell you the one that I'm nervous about as a marketer, about investing a ton of client resources into is Snapchat. I know everyone thinks that that's yeah. going to be the next, that everyone's talking about how their Snapchat's going to make it a triopoly instead of a duopoly between Google and Facebook, but I don't see it. And I think this IPO is going to be their undoing. I think they're going to have pressure to monetize. And I just don't think their platform is as friendly to monetization as Facebook was back in the day. And then Facebook, yeah. how to make it work on Instagram. And, you know, candidly, I'm not even sure if Instagram monetization is, is working as well as it could be other than the fact that it's built into the Facebook ads manager, you know, so really Facebook right. probably carrying Instagram ad sales and Snapchat as right. a platform. I'm just not sure it's there. I don't think they have that and maybe it's coming, but I haven't seen that simple DIY type process. that's going to allow small agencies and independent businesses get on there and, and really make an investment on the advertising side. I just don't see it yet. So. Yeah. I thought of who's going away and it wasn't on your list. Google plus. Google Plus will be gone <laughs> in three to five years. You know, honestly, I could almost argue that it won't simply because Google's too stubborn to let it die. I've it heard chatter that they year. will. So that would be my bet for what goes away in three to five years. Google Plus. Jamie, do you guys use Google Apps at all in the office? No, we don't. I personally do. But Have you noticed that they attach your a Google Plus profile to your Google Apps now? No, I didn't. Yeah. So every user actually in our office, whether they like it or not, has a Google Plus account because it's tied to their work email. <laughs> oh, wow. That, that just happened, I think, I, in the last like three months. So I'm not sure they're ready to, to let Google Plus kick the bucket yet. Although I, yeah. I, really well, I, I, I think Facebook's kicking their ass, really. And, I, and I'll say this because I think they're doing all kinds of stuff now. I saw where you can send money internationally and all kinds of things. So Facebook has this incredible ability to come up with new creative ways to keep their products relevant, even if they're losing the younger demographic, which I think is really interesting. And their video messaging app, I think is really powerful because it, to me, it really beats out Skype and Google Hangout and all of these different kinds of things. I don't know what you guys think about it, but I am impressed with their ability to add ancillary products and and stay relevant. Absolutely. I'm just wondering if the younger generation is going to move to MySpace. <laughs> that would be awesome. I can resurrect my MySpace. That's, 
There's there, actually, there's a good little tip for marketing leaders out there. There's a good chance you haven't touched your MySpace account in about 12 to 15 years. It is still there. I'm going to go check it when I get home. I didn't That's, even know that. You know what we should do for fun is uh, if you can find your MySpace, uh, Jamie, send us a link. We'll include uh, for fun in the show notes. We'll include links to each other's MySpaces. You got it. Absolutely. You know, I social has been the big thing for the last few years. And, you know, Tyler, you helped me make it really successful at Lightspeed. The campaigns we run, we ran were really great. And we had really clear return. I have yet to have that same experience in my current role. And it's a real challenge. And so I still think that that's the hard part for a lot of companies is to figure out how to profitably use Facebook or Instagram or any of these social channels. It goes back to that ecosphere conversation we were having, you know, you kind of have to be everywhere and it's all connected and you should be where your customers are, but to really make the time and energy investment and make it worth it, especially on Facebook, you, you know, it's all pay to play anywhere anymore. So mm. still, we really struggle with it for, for our brand on how to make it work profitably. And, and we would love to be able to invest more time and energy and resources. It's definitely not for wanting. It's just for, you know, when you're small and you try to run lean, it's you've, you've got to pick what's important and you have to prioritize. And for us in our current role, we don't have as much of a, a social presence as we would like. But with Tyler working with you before on, on Lightspeed, we have some really successful social media campaigns that drove real revenue. Um, so it's, it's interesting to go from a situation of having used it really successfully to being challenged to not being able to use it profitably. I promise everyone we did not pay for that endorsement, but we will gladly accept it. So uh, make, make sure <laughs> No, no, you didn't. But if you're offering, pay me in beer. <laughs> we, 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 we can do that. So, so this endorsement brought to you by Fidelity Development. Better brand loyalty built better. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> feel free to uh, run, run, run that portion of the interview, both in the beginning, middle and end of the podcast, please. And thank you. So uh, for those, and for those of you who don't know, Nathan is our editor. who does a fine job keeping these things moving and somewhat palatable for y'all to listen to on the tail end. Jamie, seriously though, thank you for the kind words. And uh, you're exactly right. You know, social is just like any other digital channel or even traditional channel and that you have to be able to track what you're spending and what you're getting for it. You know, you really have to treat it all like a source of paid media and ROI mm -hmm. optional. I mean, and that's the thing. It, it, I think the novelty is sort of worn off of all the new media platforms. It's like, okay, it used to be a, we have to have a Facebook because everyone had a Facebook. Right. Like we used to have to have a MySpace because everyone had a MySpace. Right. And uh, right. I, I mean, think about this for a second. There was a time when Coke set up a personal profile on MySpace because that's just what brands did. How far, That's amazing. how far have we come from the days of brands just setting up a personal profile on MySpace and then people figured out, oh, we could, we could monetize this for business. They went on this thing. So there's yeah. a, uh, whether that was the plan all, I, I, you know, I think obviously, you know, you know, but by the time Zuckerberg rolled around and Facebook was coming into its own, I think the path was already set for it. But with MySpace, that probably wasn't even on their agenda when they launched it. So they'd probably sell display ads, which was the right course du jour of the moment. I think it depends too, right? Some businesses have the money to spend to do some of that kind of exploratory marketing and can we make it work or can't we? You know, a lot of other businesses, and I would maybe argue that the majority just don't have that luxury to be able to test and to play with things. And so you really just have to decide, is it worth my energy? I really struggle with Instagram and I haven't played with in a long time. So your listeners are probably going to laugh and be like, she doesn't even know what she's talking about anymore. But I remember when Instagram launched and I was entirely opposed to using it as a business because you had to use it only from your phone. And there was no way that that was feasible from a business perspective. Now, I think they've made a lot of improvements to that now, and it's a lot more user-friendly. And I don't personally manage those channels anymore, so I don't have as much visibility to them from a business perspective. We have, you know, great staff that does that for us. But, you know, at the time, that would be one of those decisions I would look at if I was a smaller or maybe even medium-sized business and say, you know, this channel is too resource-intensive. I'm going to pass on it until I've got money to burn. Well, and there, there, there's, there, there's some truth to that. And part of it, we were frustrated on our side as well, because it was such a time suck to manage for clients because, 
you know, we try to use uh, scheduling software for our clients. And we have listening software. It lets us listen to everyone's accounts at the same time. And like Instagram didn't share their API. <laughs> so, right. so, so it just wasn't possible, which was incredibly frustrating. And they finally have fixed that now, which is great. So if anything, I, I don't think it really affected the user experience as much as it just made agency lives a little less unbearable. That was nice. But, you know, going back to the use as a business, that's actually one of my core talks that I give out on the conference circuit. Jamie is about to stop changing the channel and not signing up for every single social media platform known to man. Just because. Yeah. And there's a lot of truth to that because so many people say, oh, well, uh, I saw so-and-so on this platform. We need it too. Okay, wait, why? Is your core audience there? How are you going to track the ROI? What are you going to get from it? Is the platform fleshed out or can you wait three months, let everyone else figure it out and spend exactly. time developing the wheel and then you don't have to go reinvent it and you and you can catch up to them and surpass them within three months at half the cost. So I'm, I'm a big believer in being best rather than being first when it comes to that sort of thing, for sure. I, I echo that. I totally agree. I've, I've never yeah. been much of an early adopter. I say, no, you know, there's a lot of risk and reward there. You know, some of those people that, that do, they wind up having a great amount of success in a short amount of time. And it's definitely, you know, you have to determine what kind of risk you can stomach, but I'm less of an early adopter and I follow more of, of the philosophy you just mentioned. Absolutely. Absolutely, Jamie. And obviously I have to co-sign on that or else I'd have to give a lot of people their money back for paying to listen to me talk. So, <laughs> so Jamie, as, as we kind of wrap up this interview, you've been so generous with your time and I greatly appreciate it. Do you have a book recommendation for our listeners? So I, in the past few years, I read a book that I find really valuable and it's called Eat the Frog. And really it's, it was written back in 2007, but it was a quote by Mark Twain that, that this gentleman went on to write a book about. It, it goes something, I'm going to butcher the exact quote, but it's something about, you know, if your job is to eat a frog, eat it first thing in the morning. And if your job is to eat two frogs, eat the biggest frog first. So it's really to just get the thing that you don't want to do out of your way first thing in the day, first thing in the morning, just get it out of the way. And then you don't have to procrastinate it and, and wait till the end of the day and then, then never do it. And that really, I think, can be expanded and spread out across lots of projects and, and really helping you to focus, you know, what are the things that you don't want to do? maybe are the things that need the most attention or maybe the most, you know, time consuming and how can you break those up and do them? Because ultimately it's hard to give, I think, business advice about how, what you should do in every single business, because every business is different. Every way that they measure success is different. So that's hard. So it's, it's what can you do to be more successful on a daily basis? And I definitely think doing the thing that is maybe the most challenging first thing in the day really sets up your afternoon well and gets you out of work for happy hour right at five. That's great advice. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it is. I've, I've actually heard him. Uh, I can't remember what the podcast was. I heard him on. I think it was Brian Tracy talk about it. And yeah, mm -hmm. Just a super great concept. And I think something that all of us marketers can relate to, especially when it comes to uh, reporting. <laughs> around right. the first, I, I think everyone, I think all of us need that reminder around the first of the month when it comes time to analyzing reports. I think everyone likes to procrastinate, and all of a sudden, if, if you're not careful, you, you find out that oh, it's the fifteenth. I guess I should go ahead and wrap up that report for, <laughs> for yep. last month. Yep. <laughs> so it's guilty. Great advice to eat your frogs early. And Jamie, one, one thing we ask all of our guests is to leave us with one thing. So if you had to, if you had to give our audience of marketing leaders one thing to take away from today's episode and our great talk with you. What would that one thing be? Oh gosh, it's going to be so cliche, but really just have fun. It really, it doesn't have to be difficult. It can be really fun. You know, as marketers, we have the ability to create and share with people and create experiences and making sure those experiences are fun. So just making sure that we keep the customer in mind and that we all have fun through the process. Totally cliche, I but I promise you, I try to make my boss laugh every single day. It's like a goal that I have. That's one of the, you know, I have a lot of goals, but one of them is to, can I crack my boss up? So I, I truly think you've got to have fun at what you do. In that case, hey, Jamie. Love that. Hey, Jamie. Yes, sir. A stock photo walks into the bar and the patrons start pointing and giggling. The stock photo looks at the bartender and asks why everyone's staring. What does the bartender say? I don't know what. Your alt tag is showing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. 
I would encourage you to end every interview with a marketing joke. We do actually. Shows how, do shows you? How many, okay, shows I love that. Episodes you've listened to, but uh, today, today I, it's not very. I'll be honest. I read. I read them. I didn't listen to them. I read the topics. Oh, okay. Well, that's that, that, that's good. At least you did some homework. I understand you're busy, and I'm sure that now that you've been on the show, you'll be a faithful subscriber. I am a faithful subscriber. Glad to hear it. Uh, Jay, Jamie, again, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. A uh, lot of great takeaways for our listeners from this episode. If, if anyone wants to get in touch with you afterwards, besides your MySpace profile, which we will generously include in the show notes, how else do you want Please people do. to get in touch with you? LinkedIn is fine, or um, my email over at TGW. It's just my first name, dot my last name at TGW.com. Okay, great. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes. And uh, Jamie, thanks again for coming on to the Lion Share Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much. Okay, and we'd just like to thank Jamie again for joining us. And if you'd like to get show notes, uh, get the links from this episode, you can visit us at lionssharepodcast.com slash seven. That's lionssharepodcast.com slash seven. And you can also head on over to iTunes and leave us that five-star positive, very friendly review. And uh, we'd love to interact with you. Yeah, please go easy on us there. And we look forward to hearing with you. Send us, a, send us a message to our website. We'd love to connect with you. So, Kyle. Yeah. I have a question for you. Uh-oh. Yeah, what's the question? Why did the marketer dump her boyfriend? Why did the marketer dump her boyfriend? Oh, man. Uh, this could go a million ways. I don't know why. A lack of engagement. Oh, okay. I'm going to give that one. That's actually, I didn't see that one coming. All right. I like that. That was good. I will admit, well, no one else will think that's good, but you know, you and I have similar senses of humor. So I think that pretty much anyone out there that's a father will probably appreciate it. Okay. And just for the record, I am not a father. Okay. (laughs) So, all right. Good stuff. But uh, Kyle, thanks again. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And thanks again to Jamie for joining us. And until next time, you've been listening to the Lion's Share Marketing Podcast. Cheers. You've been listening to the Lion's Share Podcast, brought to you by Fidelitas Development, your marketing partner for better brand loyalty.